Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Art doesn't come in measured quantities. It's got to be too much or it's not enough. Those are the words of Paul Clay, 1965. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And today we have a guest in the studio. We have Associate Professor Jenny McMahon from the University of Adelaide. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Beth. And now, first of all, I'd like you to tell all the listeners, you're fairly familiar with 3CR, aren't you? Yes, I am. 30 years ago, I used to come onto a program that was on Saturday afternoons, and I'd come on to do the art reviews and to interview artists. So that was before you found philosophy, was it? Yes, it was. I was a visual artist in those days. (laughs) So now, what sort of a path have you taken since you you left 3CR 30 years ago? Well, uh, it was, in my way of thinking, it was, I was still on the same path. I was asking the same sort of questions that had always interested me. And now the way I would put it is that I was interested in aesthetic judgment. And by aesthetic judgment, I mean the the basis of the communicability of art, so the basis of of art's ability to communicate to us. Um, When I was in primary school, for example, I loved grammar. I loved grammar because I loved the thought that there was a certainty to the way we talked to each other, that there were rules that actually underpinned the sentences we used to speak and communicate and to some extent the sentences we used to think with. Now, it seemed to me there must be something like that underpinning art, but it wasn't the sort of thing that you could learn as a series of rules. Now, that kind of thing interested me all through, look, as far back as I can remember, and I always loved art. Um, When I went to art school, of course, uh, I learnt to think about this in a different way again and I thought well the basis of the communicability or the the capacity for art to communicate is the fact that we represent things so we represent uh, images and based on being able to recognize recognize those images in the world we recognize something in artworks but that seemed still inadequate because it seemed to me that art was able to convey much much more not just visual art but but literature music film um so that was the basis of my interest in this area. Right. So, look, I'd really say that I think that art is the, one of the most advanced forms of communication. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah. Now, that's, that's a really nice way of putting it. It's, it's lovely that you say that. It, it certainly is art in all its forms, I think, is in the forefront of the evolution of our ways of thinking. So that what the, the whole realm of art is dealing with that constellation of feelings, 
nuance, impressions, ideas, and so on, that we are unable to communicate in propositional form. By that I mean, say, in sentences, in literal sentences. So instead we use what you might refer to as, say, artistic form, aesthetic form. Um, we use metaphor, analogy, prior example, and so on, in order to create a structure through which something can be conveyed. So it's communicable, so it's it's subjective but not in the sense that it's whimsical arbitrary and and you know idiosyncratic because it has to have some basis by which it might communicate to others um now in the sense that it's it really is i mean the art that's most exciting is insightful because it's bringing together something we think we know but we've never been able to say ourselves that it is actually you know in the forefront um it is the most you know radical um and, and in and those artworks that really do um, have traction, get some sort of traction with us, are the artworks that then become part of a canon and then they influence what comes next and so on and so forth. But, um, yes, so so how did you put it? What did you say? You thought art was the most... I think that art is the most, one of the most advanced forms of communication. Yeah. So... It's it's well the philo- a philosoph- many philosophers would agree with you to say that it's coming from an aspect of ourselves that is is human. It's it's an aspect of ourselves we don't share with other, with other animals. Uh, it's it's based within our higher cognitive processing, but it's it's to do with that area of that where new concepts are evolving. Right. So we're not we're not stuck in entrenched ways of thinking and knowing. We're breaking out, if you like from the conceptual framework so we're not we're not coming from nowhere of course we're all we're all based within our memories and experience and so on but it's one way of thinking about it is that we maybe take aspects from various concepts resynthesize recombine them to create something new but they're only new if they're communicable they require an audience yeah, um, no, it was interesting. You, you said that, you know, I, I suppose you, you're saying that that sets us apart from other animals, but there has been quite a few um, of the great apes, chimpanzees and gorillas, who have actually been given a, a paintbrush and paints, and they've done some incredible artwork. I mean, much better than what I could have done. Yeah, they do some lovely stuff. You have to take it off them pretty quickly, though, when it gets to a point where we think it's pretty good. Otherwise, they will just keep going on and and ruining it you know they'll just sort of get it to a point where we just think it's it's a mess there's been some really interesting experimentation with chimps where they've put that you have to choose your chimp though because some of them are not interested in this at all so it's often at a development at a particular stage in their development that they're interested enough in responding to these visual things and one of the things they did at one point was um the people involved in this research put squares with openings on on one side and this particular chimp who who loved making art would fill in the would fill in the gap in the square as though you know so you know the way we read it is something's entering the square and everything he did on the page would respond to what was already there you know so it was really lovely his sense of balance and it's just that physical kind of balance a sense of um uh, symmetry and so on that came through in his mark making but once again you would have to take it off him at a certain point because he would just keep going and until he destroyed the whole thing and also it, he did get to a stage in his development once he started procreating and so on where he just wasn't interested anymore 
Mm. <laughs> well, so, that, that sounds so, like me, actually, yeah. as a child. I think every <laughs> every painting I did, I, I was never happy with it, and I just kept going until it was just some grey, slushy mess. Yeah, but the <laughs> thing, the see, the, the thing is, when we talk about human-made art, we're not talking about just mark-making um, to respond to some sort of physicality. It may start as, as that. Maybe that sets the universal sort of basis to what we like or dislike at a very rudimentary level. But in the case of human beings, we're, we've worked to a much more sophisticated level where we have a whole tradition where these things are based within, where we compare and contrast with a whole tradition, where we're expecting really quite a fine-tuned level of communicability with these um, cultural artefacts that we're we're creating and we see you know we we celebrate it because we treat it as though it's a part of ourselves that we free ch- freely choose we don't have to do this now you sitting aside people that use these things to make a living in our way of enjoying it enjoying art in the way that we're attracted to art there is nothing in it in terms of satisfying our physical um needs for survival so it's not the sort of thing evolutionary psychologists talk about in terms of satisfying desires it's it's a much higher level than that and that and so that's that's the sort of point where i i would not talk about it usually in the same frame as with the chimps whereas i must say you know 30 years ago i did used to find this very interesting and so i did a lot of research along those lines and then i just found that it really came to a dead end so even in your mark making the sort of things that you were doing and it came to a certain point where you thought oh look it's just slush slush you would have made that decision you were after something you were following some sort of hope desire idea configuration something that you are unable to get with it and so you've moved into other creative fields to be able to get the configuration you're after get that yes i have and i I certainly haven't picked up a a paintbrush i know that i have no artistic ability in in that way but look i'm not too worried because friends have actually said to me well look if we were all brilliant artists there'd be nobody really to appreciate anybody work when they do you know fantastic work uh it's it's a bit like you know you need an audience and i thought look that's that's very true and i actually like to go and i like to i like to make judgments on certain works of art now i have a large print of anguish now it's one of the old master's paintings and it's a sheep standing over her deceased lamb while they're both surrounded by ravens the ravens uh, they're just waiting to come in and start to have a meal have a meal of the deceased lamb and she has this absolute look on her face of such anguish and look i think it's just the most incredible painting i have ever seen and i i just loved it so much especially seeing it you know, at the um, National Gallery in Melbourne, I just I stood there for about twenty minutes, just mesmerised by it. And after that, I got a large print in my lounge room above the piano. And when guests come in, they sit on the couch, and I'll, I will I will walk in and I'll say to them, <laughs> "What do you think of my masterpiece in the lounge room?" And a lot of the time, people will look away and say, it's horrible. Mm. I can't look at it. And I say, but can't you see the message that it's relaying? 
the look of absolute anguish on this mother's face that, you know, she's standing there in the snow. She knows she has to leave her her lamb, her dead, you know, offspring, and she doesn't want to. And she's just throwing her head back and she's just letting out a cry. And they said, yes, yes, we understand that, but we just can't bear to look at it. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I, I think, do, do you think that there's any uh, universal ascetic judgment or is it more individual preference? So, okay, um, now in that situation, that's, that's a really lovely example. You seem to be responding to something about the artistry of this artist, the fact that they're able to create something that has structured your response to such a degree you admire. I mean, this is amazing. And every it sounds like every time you look at it, you, you just relive that, you know, amazement at someone being able to do that. Now, what you're, the people you're referring to, though, they're not looking at it like that. They're looking at it in terms of the narrative. They are, you know, like the way you might watch a soap opera, you know, typically when you watch a soap opera, unless you're a theorist, you're not thinking about how they've constructed it. You're thinking about, oh, whether Joe's, you know, marrying Sue or whatever. And that's what you're, that sounds like the people you're talking about, that's what, that's the level that they're, um, they're responding to the work at, which is, which is fine, but you're just responding to it at a different, you know, in a different way. Now, to me, there's no, um, real disagreement there. You're actually just lo- talking about different aspects of the one thing. You're looking in the same direction, but you're both perceiving something different. Um, now, so in terms of um, universality, there are you know there's lots of ways to understand the universality, say, of aesthetic judgments. A lot of people have wanted to defend that, but by that they don't mean that we're all going to agree. Um, what they might mean, in some cases, they, they're referring to universal capacity we have for these kinds of judgments. Um, in in other, uh, other philosophers have talked about aesthetic judgment in terms of what constitutes this judgment we're particularly interested in when we're referring to an aesthetic judgment. And this is a judgment where it feels subjective because it's, it's not something you're just thinking through. It's something you're responding to. It feels like it's something very personal to yourself. And yet, it doesn't feel idiosyncratic, whimsical, personal. It feels as though it's something about the thing, the object. Um, and that's why when somebody responds to it differently to ourselves, we want to find out why. If it's something, you know, we, we respond to really in a really deep kind of way. Now, when you're responding to something in that way, that's what we would refer to as an aesthetic judgment because you are in a public, you're in the public realm here. Obviously, you know, some people might look at that painting you referred to and they might love it because it reminds them of maybe, you know, the wallpaper at home or, or reminds them of some image they saw when they were a kid and reminds them of their grandma or something like that. That's fine. But when we make judgments like that, we know they're personal. We don't expect everyone to like it based on that. But the sorts of reasons that you're giving for why you like it, you expect other people to be able to see it. So it's something, it's, it's, this is what's so interesting about aesthetic judgments. It's something that's engaging you in a way that's really, you know, it's really moving. And yet it, it feels as though it's, it's, it's about something out there in the world. Um, and it leads us then to the sorts of occasions and, and, and uh, communications with each other that gives us an opportunity to calibrate that sort of constellation of ideas, images, values, and so on. Calibrate 
them with each other, at least chip away a little bit with each other in terms of, you know, what you value, what you like, how you respond. When a, when a response that you have is one that no one else understands, they think it's absolutely inappropriate or weird. You know, these sorts of uh, situations and discussions gives us an opportunity to to get to that to that really quite fine level of communication with each other, fine-tuned level of communication with each other. Mm, now, would you say it's a, it's a bit of a case of... Uh, majority rules um for example most people would agree that bull terriers are ugly dogs and it's <gasps> really only the oh only the minority of people that think that they're really cute so <laughs> <laughs> i'm a dog owner and uh, i walk my dog you know all the time and oh, i would never say any dog uh, that dog was ugly particularly you know given the way dog owners love their dogs um but I do, I know, of course, I know exactly what you mean. Now, with aesthetic judgment, though, we don't take ourselves to have exercised aesthetic judgment unless there's some subjectivity exercised. So, you know, for example, if we use a term like expressive or, or say, beauty, um, and we say, you know, is this thing beautiful? Oh, yes, it is beautiful because the expert said it was beautiful. I mean, that would be really weird if people talked like that because if they say something's beautiful, you expect them to actually to experience it in a way that would um, justify them calling it beautiful. So there's that kind of exercise of a subjectivity that's, in, that's involved in an aesthetic judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that it's an irreducible aspect of experience. That, by that I mean it doesn't mean that, okay, once you either like it or you don't, that's it. Because that's actually not the way it works, is it? So, for example, I'm not a musicologist or a musician. And uh, say if I'm listening to a piece of music and I just think it's very dull very or very pompous or very something, and somebody who's a mus musician with me is saying, no, this is a great piece of music. And I'm thinking, well, look, you're listening to what I'm listening to, but I'm experiencing it really differently. What do we do about that? Now, I don't just walk away and say, oh, but in fact that music was beautiful because the experts said so. No, sorry, unless I feel it that way, I, you know, I can't say that. So I might say to the musicologist, well, look, or the musician, tell me about this piece of music. What are you perceiving here? Because obviously I'm not getting it. So they might talk about, you know, a certain, a certain uh, passage being a repetition of an earlier passage, um, one part being a repeat of a movement of an earlier part, and so on and so forth. So that as I'm listening to it and listening to them sort of structuring it for me, I start to think, and it might take quite a few goes of going back and listening to it in the light of what they've said, but I get to a point where I'm thinking, now look, I'm listening to the same thing now, but I'm hearing a different piece of music. This is really amazing because I've configured it completely differently. What's significant and what's coming to the foreground is really different to what, what was happening before. And so I'm starting to think, hey, this, this music's not bad, you know. So then I'm exercising, you know, I'm actually exercising aesthetic judgment. So even though the people that spend their time perfecting, you know, their sensitivities in certain areas are the ones that we look to as authorities, we don't defer to that authority where aesthetic judgments are concerned unless they can show us how to re-perceive the object, reconfigure it so that we're getting close to what they're perceiving. Then we don't deem them to be the expert for us. So it's not... A case of majority rules because it's not like just saying oh everyone thinks this so I must too that's not an exercise of aesthetic judgment so it really is a, a sort of an intersubjectivity and that and that's an amazing capacity that that human beings have that they can refine their subjectivity 
You know, that's what acculturation is all about. That's why culture changes and evolves. If you didn't have the capacity for aesthetic judgment, uh, societies wouldn't change. They'd stay the same forever. Yeah, so that, that was the next question I was going to ask. Are there cultural fa- factors that come into play as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, because I'm talking there in a very formal way about configuring and so on, but the the ideas and connotations and associations around uh, representational uh, representations impact on how we how we look at things, how we configure them, what, what's significant, and what isn't, and um, and how we respond to them, and that is going to have a whole lot of cultural sort of stuff uh, underlying it. But once again, it's not something that's completely impenetrable. You know, we may move into another culture and we realise that, you know, there's so much going on that we just, we're just not privy to because we just don't have the appropriate background. But in most cases, we try. You know, we, we make an attempt and uh, we, get, we, we move to some extent. And once we do move, we never completely go back to where, the way we were before. We're enriched. Even if we still hold a conviction that we started with, that conviction will be more complexly held because we'll have more, compare, you know, more things to compare and contrast it with. So, um, but yes, in answer to your question, aesthetic judgment, of course, uh, cultural uh, knowledge and, and so on is relevant. Um, that's not to say that it's f- all, all the various cultural positions are free-floating. They've all got to be grounded in some kind of principles um, to allow them to be structured in such a way that they can be applied to new situations. Um, and so for that reason, you know, they're, they're, it's built on some sort of, um, you know, universal sort of capacities that we have. And you're listening, to, sorry. you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio and I'm speaking to Associate Professor Jenny McMahon from the University of Adelaide about aesthetic judgment. Uh, what, what is the connection with reason and desire? Uh, um, okay, so... There's a long history in philosophy of of a fairly fraught history, I suppose, um, in terms of the relationship between reason and desire. Um, to answer this quickly, I might say something like this. Um, when we reason and we're using premises to support a conclusion and we can convince somebody of this and they can say to us, yes, I absolutely agree, I can see that this conclusion is completely supported by these reasons, I absolutely agree with you. Um, am I going to act on that? Well, maybe, maybe not. So how do you get them to, you know, when you, you argue with them about something and the conclusion might be, you know, you should give your spare money to people who are less well off or something like this, they absolutely agree with you, but that doesn't mean they're going to do it. How do you get them motivated? Now, a philosopher will think that you have to then somehow hook into their their desire because desire is motivational. So feelings, for example. How do you do that? And moral judgment, for example. Is moral judgment a matter of reason or is it a matter of sentiment? If it's, it's obviously rationally grounded, but if it's completely based in reason, you have to get sentiment into the story somehow to explain how it is that when you get to this conclusion, you're going to hook in people's desires. And there, there are various in, in, in um, genius ways that philosophers have come up with in order to get these two hooked together in the way we understand them. Aesthetic judgment actually combines both. 
I mean, they never separate. They've never been separated. They've never been construed as two separate things, really, in an aesthetic judgment. Um, aesthetic judgment is rationally grounded in as much as it's communicable. So in as much as we can evaluate, talk about our evaluations and defend them in some way through analogy, metaphor, prior example, and so on and so forth, um, in as much as artists can create a form about which people can discuss in a reasonable, rational way, uh, that's, your ration, that's the rational foundations of the realm involved in aesthetic judgment. Um, the desire side of things, when I was talking about reason and desire as two separate things, desire can be carved up to be quite a fundamental one at a fundamental level in terms of satisfying appetites, but then at a much more sophisticated level in terms of a just a general longing, hoping, imagining, thinking beyond the present to what might be, to what's possible. That's the realm that the art world usually deals with. And that's why you don't have to normally, you know, do much to motivate people to get in, to go, to go off to see a film or to, to look at a painting or to listen to music. Because that's something that's very, very interesting. It's, it's a, it is a universal aspect to the human condition that we have this longing, this desire, this hope, um, this imagining for something beyond the immediate. And, um, it's the stuff of our sociability. That some philosophers have thought of it in that way. It's what brings us into community with others. It's what creates the occasion for us to develop the sorts of skills that we need in order to be able to live as communities. So I've, I haven't answered. I've answered that question about reason and desire. There are a number of different ways I could have gone about it, but in a very in a short space of time, um, I just wanted to. Um, yeah, I think hopefully I've sort of brought those two, two, um, uh, two capacities together or related them in in about four different ways there actually, <laughs> but uh, in relation to aesthetic judgment is the most relevant to this discussion. Yeah, so, do you think that art is immaterial? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Could you elaborate on that a little uh, yes, bit? Yes, we said definitely. <laughs> we may all be looking in the same direction, but we are not necessarily perceiving the same thing. And that's what's so interesting about art, because in the art world, that becomes a, it's, that's just a basic assumption. Everyone knows and understands that. But it's actually the case in the real world. There are so many lessons we can learn from the art world. Um, well, I suppose an example of, of that might be that I don't like contemporary art. I don't... I've, I don't understand it, or maybe I don't want to understand it, but it just looks like a piece of rubbish to me. A lot of it, a lot of it, it is. I mean, you know, ridiculous things. I think that you know somebody gets a bit of metal and bends it into obscure shapes, or takes a photo of rubbish that's blowing down the street, and say, "Oh, this is contemporary art." And I mean, <laughs> one example that comes to mind is. Uh, Fed Square. I think it's the most hideous building I've ever seen in my life. And I mean, you look opposite that, and there's some really nice old, I'm sure they're heritage listed buildings with so much more character that I love. So, you know, is there something wrong with me? Or. <laughs> No, look, there, I could give you an explanation as to actually as to why you might make those sorts of choices, but I, but, um, Certainly art and these sorts of choices are immaterial in that 
um, as I said before, we could be looking in the same direction and seeing something quite different. Um, and the explanations as to why we prefer one thing over another often has to do with the things that we've internalised in our own training. Uh, in terms of the art world, if you enter into the history of art and trace through the sorts of understandings, you get to a point where you're at, at a point now where art is co-created. It's created by the audience. Now, that doesn't mean anything goes because every artist will have a sort of ballpark as to what's, what's um, apt and what isn't. But it is, the, it is a case that the sort of art being created now, we can't fall into those sort of entrenched ways of responding that, that suited the sort of art that we first came in contact with when we were, you know, young kids. Those people, you know, in, you know, born, born back in the um, 50s and 60s, at least, and 70s. Um, the kids coming up now are going to be very, very different again. Um, but, you know, look, Robin Collingwood, a very, very famous and well-known uh, philosopher, used to champion Cezanne and he came to the conclusion that, you know, he, he was one of them. Benedetto Croce was an earlier Italian philosopher who said the same thing. Art really is something in your head in the sense that, you know, people can stand in front of Cezanne and they're not all perceiving a Cezanne. You know, some of them are really just stuck with a bit of paint pushed around a canvas. They're not actually seeing the genius that is Cezanne. But in order for him to see what he saw, he was involved and... and um, you know, aware of a whole history of art and knew what Cezanne was trying to do. Now, in in pres with present-day artists, they're involved in this same history and they've come to a point where they're making art that if you think that art's out there to decorate something or it's to do with making you feel calm and peaceful because it's some sort of landscape or whatever, then, you know, you're not going to get anywhere with the art that they're making. They they really are creating art where you're re you really become aware of the extent to which you have to construct the meaning of the artwork. Now, the the guys that did the original landscapes would have been in the same boat, but we've just learnt to respond in certain ways to it. And so we've lost that. We lost the edge with the, you know, more traditional art forms. But contemporary art is now pushing us back into that position where we have to be aware of our own cooperation with the artwork in order to get anything out of it. And I've been speaking to Dr Jenny McMahon about the aesthetics of art.